There was a college student many years ago, this is not about me, uh, about somebody else, a college student many years ago who uh, obviously was struggling with depression, uh, was expressing some unhealthy habits that came along with that. There were signs that something needed to be kind of looked into in his life. And uh, as uh, those around him were working with this student, uh, it became clear that he was incredibly resistant to seeing a counselor at all. Counseling was weakness. That's what he had grown up believing, and that's, what he, uh, that's the story that he was telling in this case. I don't want to go to counseling. That's a sign of weakness, right? In, in his family of origin, you didn't go to the doctor unless you were basically crawling out the door, and the same was true with anything else. Like, why would you go see a counselor? That's a weak thing to do in his mind. And what's interesting, then, if you dig, dig into what he was dealing with, there were two things that, that present themselves in this particular case, and one of them is he's dealing with his family of origin, and how they perceive the world is how he perceived the world, and for most of us, that's how it works, right? That's just the natural progression of things. We get a lot and a lot and a lot from the family we come from, good and bad in many cases. He was dealing with that in this case, and then the other thing is he just plain wasn't in tune with his own emotions. And if I can point out this morning because we're going to be talking about emotions. Emotions are a God-given thing. They're a positive. Like, God gave us emotions for a reason, and we can do right and we can do wrong with them. And we're going to be talking about emotions over the next bunch of weeks uh, in our sermon series that we're in. And so I want to talk about emotions, and I want to talk about spirituality together as we begin because when we talk about emotions, especially when we do it from the pulpit, sometimes there's a little bit of resistance that we can have. Uh, by the way, I want to go back to his story. Counseling is not a sign of weakness, by the way. I've seen counselors, many of you have seen counselors. There are great positive things that come from that. It's a good thing. But emotions, I'll talk more about emotions themselves next week, but I want to put it together with this idea of spirituality and what I mean by that word spirituality. I, I, I'm using it in what I think is the most legitimate way to use it, not as whatever I perceive as my belief system that I've made up from whatever I've concocted myself. I don't mean that as making up my own God. I mean spirituality as this relationship with the living God. That's what I mean when I say spiritual and spirituality this morning and throughout. And those two things, sometimes we think they're in conflict to talk about the two in the same breath. Emotions are one thing, spirituality is another thing. And I, I've heard two kind of points of opposition that I want to just point out right away so that we can dig into this a little further over the next few weeks. And the first is that sometimes people will point out emotions aren't really spiritual, so we don't need to talk about it in this context. Now, here's a, a scripture passage, and emotions are all over scripture if you start looking for them. Here's one from Ecclesiastes 7.9. I'm using King James for this in the next reference because I think it points it out really well for us. It says in Ecclesiastes 7.9, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger, anger resteth in the bosom, that word is soul, the Old Testament word for soul, in the bosom of fools. So you can see there's a clear connection. In the very depths of us, it affects everything about us. If soul is, is the life of the person, essentially, is how it's used throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's not simply some detached part of us. It's, it's the very essence of who you are, what makes you you. And, and is deeply interconnected with the physical and the non-physical of you. Anger, if you let it go on in this particular case, it'll rest in your very being. It'll cause problems inside and out. 
Second is related to it, so the first point of opposition sometimes we'll hear is emotions are not spiritual, thus we don't need to talk about them. The second follows from the first. Emotions are separate from the spiritual life. I think this one speaks against it, but let's take another passage of Scripture here in a moment, uh, which is uh, Psalm 25.1. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul, David says. Now, historically, if we talk about emotions being separate from the spiritual life, that one of the uh, present ways that maybe people have expressed in the church emotions and getting caught up in emotions um, and missing sort of truth, if you will, is music. Uh, Augustine talked about it. Luther talked about it. I've heard it in my own ministry from many people. When we sing and worship, sometimes people will say, I got caught up in the music and I missed the words. And, and that's a true thing that can happen. But you, they're not separate from each other, but I can understand when that happens. Uh, if, we, if there was no emotional content to the music, then we would just speak the words. Thanks be to God we don't do that. It's good to sing them too. There's got to be both in balance. But if you look at this passage here, and we're talking about emotions and the spiritual life, this life are, are connected together. When David says, unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul, same word that we saw for bosom in the last passage, my very self, David is not saying, unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my social, intellectual, physical, but not spiritual self. Right? I'm lifting up everything I am to you, God. That includes my emotions. That includes my social interactions. That includes my intellect. That includes physically who I am. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up myself, is what David is saying. Everything about me. And the idea that we, could, we can talk about some of these things independently, the spiritual life and the emotional life and those things, you can kind of academically talk about them, but you can't actually live as if they're separate and not interconnected. That's a modern idea. That's not a biblical idea. You see all throughout Scripture these things have interaction with one another. So over the next few weeks, we're talking about the idea of emotionally healthy spirituality. There's a very fine book uh, by Pete Scazzaro uh, that goes over this in uh, great detail if anybody's interested and all kinds of others, emotionally healthy leaders and all that. And some of our small groups can pursue uh, that book specifically if you're interested in this in your group. But one thing Pete Scazzaro says that I think we have to contend with as we look at the texts over the next weeks is this. He says, it is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. They are connected, is what he's contending. And I think scripture would make that contention for us as well. And so today I want to look at the issue of what is the problem with emotionally unhealthy spirituality. And I want to look at that, looking at uh, King Saul. We, saw, we heard the text from 1 Samuel 15, and I'd ask that you'd find 1 Samuel 15, if you're using the Bible that's in your pew, the orange Bible, it's page 268. And if you don't have a Bible, please take that home with you. That's our gift to you. We want people to have a Bible. And I think a physical Bible matters to have that. What we find in 1 Samuel 15 is that this is Saul's second chance, King Saul. Um, he's, he's become the leader of Israel. He's been anointed king. Uh, Samuel references that in our text in 1 Samuel 15. But his first chance to really prove that he trusted God as a leader, happened in 1 Samuel 13, a couple chapters ago. And in that particular chapter, the Philistines, their enemy at the time, is, are coming in. They're amassing their army to come in. And Saul has his army there. And he's got instructions from Samuel, 
who the book is named after. Samuel is the last judge of Israel. He's also a prophet and a priest. He's got three functions in this case. So he's speaking for God as a prophet. And he's given the instructions to Saul to wait until I arrive, until I, Samuel, arrive. Then we'll consecrate things with a sacrifice. And then we will go into battle against the Philistines. And there's a time period when they'll meet together. They'll rendezvous at the specific time. But Saul's army starts deserting him as the Philistines start amassing and looking like a pretty menacing force. And then Saul freaks out. And Saul sees that Samuel misses the deadline by a little bit. So Saul does the consecration himself. He acts as a priest and does the consecration and sacrifice himself. Samuel arrives on the scene and says, what have you done? You disobeyed God. And now as a consequence of your disobedience and taking on a role that wasn't yours and changing the the commands, basically, for your army from what God commanded, as a consequence, your dynasty is going to be done with you. You would have had a lasting and enduring kingdom, but you're going to be the only king in your family line. You're still king, though, so you didn't take that away, but you're going to be the last one in your family line, the last and only. That's the background to what's happened. Saul's now had some time between then where you would think he would have learned, and then you get to 1 Samuel 15. We didn't read verse 3, but let's read verse 3 right now. It says, and this is important for the rest of it, it says, Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy, keep that phrase in mind, totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. This, when it says totally destroy, that in Hebrew is the word harem, which if in my footnote and probably in yours, if you're looking at the little uh, black dust at the bottom of the page, it says that that same word is used in 1 Samuel, not just 15.3, but also 8, 9, 15, 18, 20, and 21. It's also used a ton in the book of Joshua. And the concept here is known to Saul. The concept here is that God gives the command for battle and the instructions are to be followed as God gives them. In the book of Joshua, you can see that when they go to Jericho, for instance, God says destroy everything. When they go to Ai, God says you can keep some of the things, some of the bounty of the conquest. Here, God says you are to destroy everything. You're to make the civilization so it can't function again is what he's saying. So it can't come back. The word means ban or devote to destruction is what it really means. Totally destroy is how it's translated here. And two important things, only God can give the command. This this is the army of Israel fighting for God, not the reverse. And then it is God's battle. They are God's enemies in that sense, and it's God's victory. It's not Israel's. And you can see that Saul kind of blurs the lines on all of this. And that's why it's important to understand this. It was Saul's second chance to follow, to show that he trusted God, that God was his God, and that he would do what God wanted him to do in obedience. He should have grown, and yet he's still immature and prideful. And if we we can look at the circumstances then, and we can say, what was Saul's problem? How does he show this immaturity and this pride? Three things pop out from what we can see from the text, and then we can see God's reaction to each of those things. The first is, if we understand this idea that God gives the command to go into battle, it's God's battle, Israel's doing the fighting, but it's God's uh, victory to be won, Saul changed the command. Saul changed the marching orders to fit his own purposes. He kept the best of the flock, 
And we'll see, of course, he makes excuses, but he kept the best of the flock. He captured the king. He wasn't supposed to do that. And then, I don't know if you caught this, uh, I, it's, he sets up a monument to himself for the victory. So that seems like that's the, the, the top. I mean, how do, you, how do you put icing on the cake of disobedience? That's how. God, it was supposed to be your victory, but I'm going to set up a monument to myself. If that's not the definition of pride, I don't know what is. God's response is in verse 11 where he says to Samuel, I regret that I've made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Those are heavy words. So Saul changed God's commands to fit his purposes. A second thing that Saul does, I think this is really worth noting, is that Saul made excuses, and he tried to use obedience to cover disobedience. So he clearly disobeyed, but he tries to say, but really, did I? You know, I really did what I'm supposed to do according to the law, that kind of thing. Over Christmas break, we watched uh, Home Alone 2 as a family. I'd seen the first one. The family had watched the first one. I had never seen the second, so we all were picking a movie, and we said, well, let's watch that one. That sounds fun. Um, It's like the first, only in New York. But um, (laughs) still fun. But uh, uh, Kevin McAllister, the Macaulay Culkin main character in the movie, at one point he is talking to the bird lady of Central Park, who he at first is afraid of, and then he gets to know her. And there's some bad theology in the movie, even if it is entertaining. And this is one of the moments where you get sort of this bad theological moment, where they're talking about some of the bad things that they've done in the past. And Kevin, this, this, you know, uh, preteen kid is feeling bad about some, some of the way he's treated his family. And the bird lady, to encourage him, says, you know, if you do good things, those will basically cross out the bad things that you've done. Now, practically speaking, that doesn't really work. And theologically, that's not how God does things. I don't know if you've paid attention to that in Scripture, but that's not how God works. It's just not true. That if you do enough good things, they'll outweigh the bad things. Saul's kind of trying to work that line, though, here, in my opinion. And, and his, his response is to try and make some excuses and say, but I was obeying. I was doing things that would honor God with the stuff that I had taken in battle. But God's response is heavier than the last one when you look at it. This is in verses 22 and 23. It's delivered through Samuel, functioning as prophet, as mouthpiece for God. Samuel says, does, God, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul's facing all kinds of consequences. And what we can recognize here is that partial obedience is still disobedience. We can parse that a little bit, and I'd like to do that because I think that's important to recognize here. That you can have partial obedience that's moving in the right direction. It's still disobedience. But, but there's some redemption that can be found in it. And you can have partial obedience 
That's still disobedience, and it's going in the wrong direction. So I want to parse that a little bit and, and state this. There, there might be evidence that somebody's trying to go in the right direction, or somebody can learn if they're partially obedient. I think we've got to acknowledge that. So if you're, if you're a kid and your mom or dad says it's time to clean you know, your room, uh, of course, sometimes there's a, an obedience gap that happens with kids. I don't know if you've recognized this, you know, that a motivation gap sometimes, like, I don't want to do that. But a kid might try, and a kid might not be fully successful because they're not very good at doing certain tasks. As they're kids, they're still learning, but they are teachable, right? And so one of the ways that Scripture uses sin, it uses about five different major examples, but one of them is just missing the mark, like an arrow shot that misses the mark. And that, that's kind of what that would be there, right? Disobedience in a case like that would be missing the mark. It's not that I have a heart that's hard. I just didn't get there, right? It's still disobedient. But it could be teachable to learn full obedience. And you can compare then David, King David, who will come after Saul, the successor, and King Saul himself. Saul confesses. He doesn't really confess. It's just words coming out of his mouth. There's nothing that changes in his heart. David, you could argue, does things as bad or worse than King Saul does. But he has a contrite, shapeable heart that says, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to be disobedient again. It was wrong to do it, but I can be changed. And there's a distinction to be made there. It's still disobedient. It's still wrong. But Saul is passive-aggressive, actually, when you get down to it. He's trying to be nice on his face and tell you one thing, but manipulate the system to get what he wants underneath. He doesn't have a heart that's ready to be shaped. He has a heart that's prideful, that wants to set up a monument to himself, but say it's for God. So there's a difference there. Saul uses obedience to cover for disobedience. And he does that by lying. That's the third thing to notice. Saul is lying to himself. He's lying to others. Ultimately, he's lying to God, all of which are bad paths to take. So if you look at 1 Samuel uh, 15, verse 13, you have one of these great interchanges that happens. Um, This is one of the fun ones, I think, in all of Scripture. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Kindness on his face, right? And Samuel, this isn't on the screen, but we got to read it anyway. Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle I hear? Translation, I can hear your disobedience, Saul. I can smell it. I can see it right there. You are not supposed to have those animals. You weren't supposed to take them. You've taken them, and yet you tell me everything's right, but you've disobeyed. He's lying, just flat out lying to everybody around him. And when you lie to yourself, ultimately you're lying to God too, because God can see through it. And Saul's doing that very thing. He's not at all in touch with his own reality. Uh, In verse 28, You can see the consequence of all this because he tries to confess, but it's really not really all that sincere. In verse 28, it says, Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. So the first consequence of his first disobedience was that you're not going to have a dynasty after you, but I'm not taking you out of leadership. Now he just gets pummeled for his disobedience over and over. And by the way, you're no longer leader. And that just sends him into a frenzy from that point on. He, he kind of goes crazy from there. 
but he's been lying. So he changes God's commands to fit his purposes. He uses obedience to cover for disobedience. Oh, I was going to sacrifice those things. And then he lies to everybody. Himself, others, God. When I was working with college students years ago, living in the dorm, working with them um, 20 years ago, um, I had a student who uh, had punched the bed in anger. His roommate was very concerned about him because he thought he hurt his hand. He thought he broke it. He's like, will you please go check in on my roommate? So, sure, I'll go check in on him. I walk down the hall, um, and I say, I heard you hurt your hand pretty bad. You can see it's kind of, you know, aching. Um, and his roommate was concerned he needed to get an x-ray or something and wasn't going to do that out of pride, basically. I said, so how did it happen? Well, I fell in the shower. Those were not showers you could fall in and break your hand without great acrobatics. And I was like, really? I, okay, but I heard you punch the bed. Oh, no, I didn't do that. I fell in the shower. And as much as he could make eye contact, which wasn't much, I'm looking straight at him. And you have a conversation, you've probably been in these two, where you can both tell that that person is lying straight to your face. You just know it. You can see through it. Both of you can. That's what Saul's doing in this case. He's just flat out lying. And in those cases, we, we have to actually be honest with what's going on, first and foremost with ourselves, with what's going on between us and others and us and God. Because if we're not, we can end up being in the same place as Saul. We can be prideful. We can mask our disobedience with obedience, and we can lie to God as much as we lie to ourselves about our reality. Saul's not emotionally or in any other way in touch with himself other than that he wants what he wants. So it brings us to the question that we could ask about this if we're asking about the consequences of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. How emotionally healthy are you if you did an assessment? Because Saul looks outwardly good. That's part of the the deal when he's selected as king, God says, they're rejecting me, not you, Samuel, you know, and, and uh, I'm going to pick the king. He's going to look good on paper, but he's, he's going to, basically, if he succeeds, it's going to be because of me, God says, and if he fails, it's going to be because of him, because he's trying to live on his own strength. Saul looks outwardly good. He looks together. He looks obedient. He even tries to put that face on for others, but there's a lot going on this, under the surface that is absolutely not together in any way. And there are a number of ways that we ourselves can look outwardly healthy, but are actually emotionally and spiritually mature on the inside. I'm just going to give you four this morning to consider as we go to the table as food for thought. One of them, and these all come from Pete Scazzaro again, because he's, he's just laid this out so nicely. One of them is that we can avoid healthy conflict in the name of keeping the peace. That that is one way that, that what's going on inside of us and what's going on out here don't coincide together. And some of that can be family of origin issue. We come from families where we didn't deal with uh, uh, conflict in any reasonable way. We always wanted to have peace, but we never dealt with the underlying issues. Um, Saul, interestingly, is the leader of God's covenanted people, but he comes in at a still tumultuous time. He comes in at the end of the period of the judges. Samuel's the last judge. And during that whole period, you have God's covenanted people who are supposed to be faithful and show the world who God is. And they they've keep getting into trouble. God keeps rescuing them. God delivers them a judge who brings them to prosperous times, but they keep disobeying again. And often we see this circle, the cycle of the judges. But actually, the cycle of the judges is that they don't just, they keep descending into chaos. Each time they don't get better, they get worse each time God rescues them. And then finally, the book of Judges ends with, in that time, they, they, everybody did as they saw fit, and they had no king. And then they finally get Saul. He comes in in a time when they're kind of at the bottom, 
in many ways of how, what obedience to God looks like, and in many ways, he represents the family system that he comes from. He doesn't bring them up. He brings them down along the way. He avoids the issues. He does what he wants to do. And this appears to have affected him. And it's never a good excuse for how to do life. The second, and I can be guilty of this. I can be guilty of the first too. But the second one I can really be guilty of, and maybe you can too, is ignoring or suppressing emotions. I kind of know what I'm feeling. I kind of know the emotion that's going on there, but I don't want to deal with the emotion, or I don't know how to express the emotion, or I don't know how to, uh, whatever it is. And maybe it's just the old sweet in me or whatever, but it, do, it it's just gets pushed down. And that's not an emotionally healthy way, and that will actually have an effect on how we are before God if we can't be real about who we are and what's going on inside of us. And part of that, I'll just be honest, part of that in my own life I recognized is um, that I didn't even have the vocabulary, I realized, until not too long ago for how to express those things. A lot of men, particularly, I'll speak to men for a moment, we get anger and we get not angry as our emotions, right? Most of it's not anger. Most of the time when we think it's anger, it's something else, hurt, sadness, frustration. When we have that vocabulary, all of a sudden we can actually deal with it better. So there are ways to to deal with these, but some of us just push it down because we don't want to deal with it. Or we don't want to deal with the past and the emotions that that brings up because they're too hard. Sometimes we can have sort of emotionally unhealthy things that go on because we use work for God to run from God. And we heard that Matthew text today, which uh, is such a powerful text to remember to have this relationship right, not just do ministry for God. Because we can do all the right things in the world. We can sacrifice the animals that we saved in battle out of obedience, but be wrong with God. And Jesus says in the end, I'll say, I never knew you. You didn't have this relationship right. We weren't together. You did a bunch of good things in my name. And we can do that. And finally, living without limits. This is something that I think often culturally has infiltrated the church in a great many ways uh, in sort of a universalist theological sense that is, God will forgive me. I can do what I want to do. God's not going to turn anyone away, right? This gets into that home alone theology again of like, if I just do enough good things, it'll outweigh the bad things because my bad things couldn't possibly be that bad compared to other people. And we end up living without limits whatsoever. When it comes down to it, when Saul finally apologizes or confesses his sins, he's not really sorry. He's sincerely out of touch with himself, with God, with Samuel as a result of all of this. And even you can see in his words, he doesn't have a commitment to God at all because even in a couple times in this very text, he says, I want to worship your God to Samuel. He's not fully committed. He's trying to cover for his own what he wants to do. And ultimately, Samuel has to finish the job that Saul won't because of his disobedience. Saul's problem, as it turns out, was soul deep. It went to the very bosom of Saul, if we want to take that Ecclesiastes passage. He tried to live without limits, and he tried to call it faithfulness to God. And this is the problem with emotionally unhealthy spirituality. It puts us out of relationship with God. It puts us out of relationship with others. And ultimately means we're out of relationship even in our own selves. It's a soul, total soul concern and a soul deep problem. 
So as we go to the table, I just have a couple questions to think, think about. Then we can go to confession as our start. And, and the question, the leading question is, is what way am I like Saul? What still needs to be confessed? So I have three questions. One is, have I learned from my past disobedience to God? Do I have a contrite heart that's, that's willing to change when I've been wrong in the past and had to confess? Or is pride still strong in me? Second, do I have obvious parts of my life that I hide from myself and thus God? And you might say, well, if I hide it from myself, I don't actually know about it. Well, we all know those parts in our, our, ourselves that we don't want to deal with. That's what I'm talking about. We know they're there. We don't want to unearth them and lay them bare before God. Are, those, are there obvious parts of your own life that you hide from yourself and thus hide from God? that need to be laid bare so they can be healed and redeemed. And finally, how am I using excuses of doing things for God to keep me from being with God? So I encourage you to consider all those. I, I want us to take some silence, and then we're going to go to the table together. We'll, you can be silent for a little bit to confess your sins before the Lord, and then we'll affirm our faith and take the Lord's Supper together to receive His grace. Let's go to silence before the Lord.